Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Elizabeth Carney. I'm the chair of the club's Business and Leadership Forum and your moderator for today's program, which is entitled, What Makes Food Good? We are underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation's Good Food Lit program in conjunction with Food Matters Forum, Fetzer, and Organically Sonoma. We want to introduce Mark Bittman and Anna LaPay. Mark Bittman leads us in how to make food, whether vegan, vegetarian, or omnivore, teaching us to improvise like jazz musicians. He guides us to think deeply about our food system and how it can be improved. A New York Times food writer, Mark Bittman presents the 20th anniversary edition of his famed landmark book, How to Cook Everything, The Definitive Guide to Simple Home Cooking. The new edition has been completely revised for today's cooks while retaining Bittman's trademark minimalist style, easy to follow recipes, variations, and tons of ideas and inspiration. In addition to this 20th anniversary activity, he has launched a new magazine called Heat, which we will hear more about today. Anna LaPay joins us as a best-selling author, a renowned advocate for sustainability and justice along the food chain. She is an advisor to funders who invest in food system transformation. Anna is a founder and co-founder of three national organizations and currently directs Real Food Media. Along with her work at Real Food Media, Anna leads the Food and Democracy Program of a Family Foundation in California. Today, she will lead us in discovering how to make a better food system. Hi. <laughs> so happy to have you here, both it's of fun you. Fun to be here. The topic of the 20 year success of how to cook everything is as fresh and necessary today as it was 20 years ago, maybe more so. Making the switch from industrialized packaged food to whole foods cooked at home seems to be showing some sense in the studies on health. Studies on packaged and prepared food consumption show humans with an increase in weight gain, obesity versus making food from scratch using whole food seems to have some benefits. You write that the new edition of your book, Mark, is revised for today's cook. So who is today's cook? <laughs> I wish I knew, any? actually. <laughs> um. When I first wrote that book, there was a sort of passionate plea, or I pled passionately, um, against people's use of convenience food. And um, that has really not changed that much, only now what we think of, uh, what I thought of as convenience food, then we would now generally term junk food or ultra-processed food, UPFs is the is the phrase we're currently using. Um, but the idea is kind of the same, which is that um, if you start with real ingredients and you cook them yourself, you eat well. And if you eat the food that the food industry would rather you eat, which is high-profit, ultra-processed food, you eat badly. Um, not everybody can make that choice. It's not as straightforward as that, but from a cookbook perspective, it is. And... Um, that's what How to Cook Everything's about. What inspired you to uh, do you know, the book? I could say money. Um, <laughs> it's a story. I, I had no intention of writing uh, what became How to Cook Everything. My passion at the time was my passion. This is going back not 20 years, but 25 or even 30 because um, – in the late 80s, early 90s, my idea was to write a book about fish because there hadn't been a really great general fish cookbook since James Beard wrote his in the 
late 50s, early 60s. So it had been 20, almost 30 years. Um, but fish cookbooks were notoriously hard to sell. However, I sold one and it did very well. And through this, I'm going to try to shortcut through this story. But um, there was this publisher who who published computer books. And, and you all remember, I'm sure, back in the 80s when there would be books like this called how to use MS-DOS. <laughs> so what the guy knew was big, fat, those thousand-page books. And he saw a copy of Joy of Cooking, and he said to my editor, you know that big, fat cookbook? I really like that. We should do one of those. He knew nothing about... He knew nothing. He just knew that he liked big, fat books <laughs> and that there was a cookbook like that, and he wanted to publish one. So because the fish book had done well... Um, I was asked if I wanted to write The New Joy of Cooking, basically, and um, I said, sure. And four years later, four and a half, we published How to Cook Everything. So that's the one from a couple of years ago. That's the one from 20 years ago. And how did you decide... To revise it? To revise it, and in this way. Well... So beautiful. There have been complaints about how to cook. I mean, many, how to cook everything is beloved. Thank you. It's great. <laughs> um, but there have been complaints, two complaints. One is where are the photographs, and it is rather text-heavy, the original. And the second one was, and I always loved this, people would come up to me and say, I don't want to know how to cook everything. I want to know how to cook some things. So... Um, <laughs> The idea was not so much a distillation, but a, it's really still quite big, as those of you who haven't seen it will. Um, but it's a little bit smaller, and it has photographs. And it's, <laughs> I, you know, there's a, there's a, not to jump the gun on the next part of this conversation, but there's an attitudinal, philosophical, practical change also, and that is there's a lot less meat in it. And that's that's the way... We write. So I always do this, actually, because you will all impress one another, um, and you'll, this is a prediction, but I'm not going to be wrong. Um, this is an interesting, this is my audience survey, and this is a very interesting thing to do. Um, raise your hand if you're eating less meat than you were 10 years ago. I would say that's most, most right. people. So raise your hand if you're not. Are you sure you're not just being... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's There's always ninety or ninety to a hundred percent, and and um, and uh, you know, I I've talked about that, I've written about that, I've encouraged that, um, and the new version of How to Cook Everything reflects that. There's more emphasis on foods from the plant kingdom and kingdom, and few, less emphasis on foods from the animal kingdom. Which is not to say there's no meat, there's plenty, but there's also less. Well, you're both luminaries in the world of non-meat world. Some of us um, in this present company are steeped in that. <laughs> we could even say it's in the DNA mm -hmm. of some of us. Um, so I am interested in... Um, I mean, you write flexibility and sustainability, but I bet both of you have some ideas about what that looks like today. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say in my household, your How to Cook Everything vegetarian, which if, if you haven't all seen that, there's also that in his genre of books is, is the most, you know, the one that's in the kitchen that is our, our family's Bible. But yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at, Mark, about what has transpired over these last two decades in terms of the conversation about what are all of the implications of such a meat-heavy American diet and how that connects us to climate, it connects us to animal welfare, it connects us to uh, the other environmental issues, it connects us to social justice issues. I feel like that whole conversation, I'm curious if you would agree, has shifted pretty dramatically in the past 20 years. And when Elizabeth, you're referring to the, the sort of plant forward spirit of my DNA, you might be referencing the work of my mother, Frances Moore LePay, who wrote Diet for a Small Planet, uh, almost... 
50 years ago. So Mark and I actually were just together last night at another event that was the 44th anniversary celebration of an organization that she co-founded called Food First. And so, yes, definitely thinking about where our food comes from, thinking about all of the political ramifications of those choices is very much in my DNA. Yes. Do you have more you want to say about the flexibility and sustainability aspect of this new 20th anniversary edition? No, but I think um, the book speaks for itself. I think I, we can talk about that in general. Um, you know, how to cook everything is intentionally not, it's a cookbook. It is intentionally not a uh, diatribe or in any way a statement. It's a cookbook. It's intended to be used in the kitchen. Having said that, um, a lot has changed in the last 20 years. And um, my thinking about cooking, which I think was instinctually or or um, intuitively moving in the right direction, has become much more consciously um, not only less meatarian, but, but uh, generally more conscious and more aware of sustainability and, and in general agricultural issues. And I spend the majority of my time now talking about not so much cooking, but about food and eating, how we raise food, what we, what we raise, what we're encouraged to eat or sometimes forced to eat, um, and how that affects our health, the environment, the climate, social justice, and so on. And that that to me has become more of a priority than than cooking. I think cooking is important for those of us who love it and want to do it. Um, and I'm certainly among those people, but um, everybody eats, not everybody cooks. And it's important to talk about what people eat and, and especially how, um, well, as Wendell Berry said, eating is an agricultural act. And... Um, and it is what happens out in the fields is what determines what we eat. And we have very little control over what happens out in the fields. And that's that's an important thing. So I'm wondering, um, we've talked a little bit about how you began your first um, cookbook. Um, but I'm wondering for both of you, Anna, I think it was around maybe 2010 that you wrote Diet for a Hot Planet. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe for Mark, it was around 2013 that you wrote VB6, Eat Vegan Before Six to Lose Weight and Restore Your Health uh, for Good. Uh, that came out in 2013. So I'm interested in what your spark was and then what's changed yeah. since then. Yeah, and it's interesting. So my, my third book, Diet for a Hot Planet, which is an obvious homage to my mother's Diet for a Small Planet, I guess it came out a couple of years, a year or two before VB6, but I see them very much as part of the same conversation, Yeah. which uh, that the genesis of that book was actually a, uh, a really, in a way, really boring genesis, which was sitting alone in an apartment in Brooklyn reading a United Nations study. And it was the first study to do a global assessment to try to do, I should say, because the data is really lacking in a lot of ways, but to try to look globally at what is the overall impact of livestock production on climate? And it was an attempt to pull together all the data that we had at the time to look at. If you look at all the emissions associated with livestock production, everything from the land use required to grow the crops to feed the feedlot beef, uh, things like the methane that's being emitted when ruminants like cattle are burping, uh, things like the synthetic fertilizer and the nitrous oxide that comes from that. If you add all of that up, you know, what are those, what are the implications of that? And at the time, the researchers found that livestock production alone was responsible for about 18% at the time of global emissions, which to put in perspective, that was more than all transportation combined. Now, that number percentage-wise has gone down, largely because we're just emitting a whole lot more from other sectors, but it's about 14.5% today, which is still significant. And globally, the food system all told from all sources of food is about one-third of all greenhouse gas emissions. So I like to say, and I think Mark would join me in saying this, if we are serious about talking about climate change and acting on climate change and solving the crisis, you have to put food into the center of that conversation. So the genesis of diet 
for Hot Planet was really my wake-up call. Wait a second. This is huge, and no one was talking about it. Some colleagues of mine at Johns Hopkins University actually did an analysis of all of the newspaper articles in 16 of the most popular newspapers at the time that were writing about climate change, and they analyzed how many of them mentioned food or agriculture or livestock production in those news articles at the time, just before I wrote my book about climate change. And it probably would surprise none of you to know that the finding was like less than 1%. Again, even though this was this really significant contributor. So I hoped with Diet for a Hot Planet to be part of that conversation to really start uh, that a lot of people were starting to have about putting the conversation about food at the center of conversations about climate. And um, everything that we do is on a personal level as well as a family level and a community level. So I'm wondering, how is it that you guys find your food? <laughs> what do you do? Where do you go? Well, I'll answer that. But um, everything's not on a... I mean, of course, people make personal decisions. But um, you can only make choices about what's what you're presented. Um, so although it's fine to talk about what the right choices are, I just want to reiterate what I said about agriculture, which is that we can only eat what we're, what we're presented. Um, and if 40 or 60 or 80% of the food that's grown is intended for animal feed or ethanol or junk food, that only leaves a small percentage or a relatively small percentage to be presented to us as real food. So um, we have all, and we're among the more privileged people in this country, we have all been in positions where we'd kind of like to eat something decent and it's just not there. And for us, it's not, I mean, forgive me for making um, assumptions about all of you when it may only apply to most of you, but we we can afford to eat well, um, and yet there are times that we actually can't physically do it. Or you're in a position, and and this is true of colleagues of mine, friends of mine, who who know exactly the right way to eat and have every intention of eating well, and find themselves in positions where there's just nothing. There's just nothing around. Um, so, okay. Having said all of that, what was the actual question? <laughs> I'm sorry. We'll say, how do you get access to healthy food? Right. Well, um, it's easy if you're home, it's easy if you cook and it's easy if you have money. Um, if you're not home, if you don't cook, if you don't have money, then it's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. But, um, the idea of what I was saying before is that even if you do have money, if you're not home or you're in a difficult situation, we all know that we're not eating well. If you don't have money, you're not home. It's just hopeless. It's Mark, really hopeless. when you wrote VBG, six, six, six sorry, VB6, uh, I always just call it vegan before six. <laughs> um, there, were there particular health reasons that led you to write that book? Well, that book was preceded by a book that was called Food Matters. And, and I mean, maybe that story is of interest. It's similar to Anna's story. But I was on, I was with a, a group of international journalists in 2007. And one of them said to me, you know that uh, livestock is as responsible for climate change as anything else. And, um, I didn't. And he referred me to the same report Anna was just talking about, which was called Livestock's Long Shadow. And it was a UN report that said 19% of greenhouse gases came from industrial animal production. And I, um, that, that changed, that changed my life and certainly changed my career. And I started writing about <clears throat> those kinds of things for the times. The first piece I wrote was called Taming the Meat Guzzler, <laughs> which um, was 
really popular piece and, and with a great headline for which I thanked that copy editor about a thousand times. And I'm sure really popular with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? sure. I'm sure they loved, they loved that you were getting into that beat. Yep. Um, but at the same time, I recognized that my own diet was um, less than, let's say, less than ideal. And um, I challenged myself to change my diet, and that, that became VB6, which was I ate and pretty much continued to eat um, like a fanatic vegan until 6 o'clock at night, and then I do whatever the hell I want. So that <laughs> I've adjusted that a little bit because now I'm, I eat more, you know, I think two-thirds, three-quarters of a plant-based diet is a sort of achievable goal for most of us, and that's what I strive for. Um, that's a, another series of conversations, but yeah, so that's my history a little bit. I, if I come at it as a nutritionist, then the other thing I think about is, well, what are the other costs to people who don't eat the way that you are? And gee, there's a lot of copays at your <laughs> medical Mm -hmm. um, bills that uh, come into the equation about how much food costs. So that's kind of an interesting fact. Yeah, yeah. And I think there has been this growing, again, emergent conversation about really understanding that food is medicine, food as medicine, and uh, a movement to try to bring a conversation about nutrition into medical schools, the radical thing that that would be, uh, to try to <laughs> bring, there's, there's a movement afoot among even health insurers and, and really the medical establishment to see that connection, of course, between how much we are spending as a nation on diet related illnesses and how it so much comes back to the food we eat. But the other piece that, that I think is interesting to stress about nutrition, which I think, you know, Mark, really you get into in VB6 and we've talked about before is that I think part of what we are up against uh, and what Mark you're up against in your VB6 messaging is this narrative about how much protein we need in this country. And I think that most people don't realize, and I'd be curious, you know, how many of you realize this? Maybe, maybe most of you do, but that the typical American is eating twice as much protein as their body needs. And the nutritionists out there uh, might know that eating too much protein is not good for your body. Uh, it's also not something like you can't store protein as protein. Essentially, I see that overconsumption of protein as a form of food waste, that we're wasting all this energy to produce all this protein that, that actually our bodies aren't really using. And so that, that one point, I think, is such an important point to drive home that you can make the choice that Mark is encouraging you and that many of us are encouraging folks to do to reduce how much meat you're consuming. And there isn't a trade-off in terms of your health. In fact, for a lot of Americans, the trade-off is a, what's a, what's an anti-trade-off? It's a benefit, right? And, uh, and, and so that I think is a really important point to be making as we talk about the, the, the choices that we're all talking about for their environmental benefit, that they have all of these co-benefits that relate to our health. Can I um, just add to that for a second? The very, um, the, the way that people refer to protein, and so you'll be in a restaurant and someone will say, would you like to have some protein with that? Or um, <laughs> someone will say, um, what are we having for protein? Or... And um, it's important to recognize that all foods have protein um, and that on a per calorie basis, many vegetables have more protein than many animal products. And that calling animal products protein, mm -hmm. saying, do you want protein when you mean do you want chicken, mm -hmm. um, is a marketing ploy on the part of the, mm. of the livestock industry mm -hmm. because animal products are not protein, animal products comprise uh, all the nutrients that other products do. All foods have nutrients in different proportions, but none is actually a protein. And probably we don't want to get into this, but none is actually a carb either. So um, <laughs> calling things by their dominant nutrient is a form of reductionism that does none of us any good. Um, and that often is a way to market either animal products or a specific weird diet. Um, That's right. So <laughs> I get that it's amusing, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
And the LePay family did not pay you to say that. <laughs> I've, yeah, nothing but love and respect for the LePay family. It's shared on this stage. Uh, in Diet for a Hot Planet, um, there's a chapter that I found particularly poignant. You write about the ingredients for a new ag system. It's called the HOPE chapter. It's called Climate Friendly Farming. And here were your five ingredients. Nature-mentored, restorative, regenerative, resilient, and community-empowered. You were ahead of your time. I think that's <laughs> highly relevant today. I'm especially interested in the community mm -hmm. empowerment part. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So what I meant by that in the book, and again, I feel like this is a continuation of this conversation we had last night at the gathering for Food First. What I meant by community empowered, another word we might think of when we hear that is, I meant democracy. You know, I meant that it has to be grounded in democratic processes and that, that you could get a lot of those other features maybe in play, but if there isn't actually uh, a relationship between the food system and the people who are benefiting from it, there's a problem there. And one of the things that, you know, and I think Mark, you did this really well as a columnist at the Times and in your other writing, one of the other things that we need to talk about when we talk about what is that food system we're, we're fighting for, where do we want to head? It's really taking on the kind of incredible industry consolidation we've seen in the food system over the last several decades, kind of the same concentration you see in media, uh, you see in the tech industry, we're seeing in the food industry. And that is the antithesis of community empowered and community grounded. And I think a lot of the problems we see in food, whether we're talking about how much these processed products aren't good for us, or we're talking about uh, the uh, unchecked, unregulated pollution from factory farms, the root cause of that is often that there is a real disconnect between what you and I want to see in our food and what those policies look like. And that has to do with just how much industry has consolidated power and how much they're influencing those policies and regulations through direct lobbying, through all kinds of, uh, of ways that are not always so transparent. Mm -hmm. And labor. And, and of course, right, what's happened, uh, to, to labor in the workforce. So there's about 21, 22 million people who work in the food system. And those jobs are among the least paid, some of the most dangerous jobs that we have in this economy. Mark and I are on, uh, both together on an advisory council for a group called the Food Chain Workers Alliance that is working to really unite workers across that food chain to really bring up the voice of workers. And that, again, what does community empowerment look like? It looks like in that alliance alone, 375,000 workers across the food chain having a voice together in a place to really fight for the kinds of policies that would, would really change the food system things like an actual livable wage for food workers and protections for farm workers from pesticides and those kinds of things. There's also missing the hands that, um, that take the apples off the trees or in, in our state, we have a real problem with how it is we're getting our harvest these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's an immigration issue. I'm not <laughs> sure you want to go there. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> But let's talk a little bit more about the media side of it. You've both been in media much of your lives. And uh, can we, um, how is the media landscape influenced by those special interests? I'm happy to, to jump in on, go, on, go right on this one to, right um, to say, you know, one of my, um, uh, one of the things that I have found most fascinating over the last two decades that I've been working on these issues is I'm always fascinated by not just, uh, how, you know, what do we know about the food we eat, but, but who's, who's telling us what we hear? I mean, your point about this messaging around protein, you know, where does that narrative come from? And so I have been really curious to look at how, how are we getting our news and information about food and farming and about things like pesticides? And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe it, it might not surprise many of you that there are a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation out there that's really actually, that might seem like it's coming from some dis, you know some some uh, neutral observers about our food system but it's actually funded by special interests that have a real uh, a real stake in our food looking a certain way so there's uh, groups like um, the American 
Council on Science and Health. Uh, you might have seen them quoted in the news. They have actually over the years uh, been quoted in articles about, you know, you, you, you consumer, you know, this whole argument for organic and why we need to be worried about pesticides. You don't really need to be too worried about pesticides. Well, you look at who's funding the American Council on Science and Health. It's some of the biggest biggest uh, uh, agrochemical companies in the country. Um, So I think there's a lot of examples of um, what we know are called front groups. So groups that sound like, again, that they're representative of science and information. They're actually funded by by industry. And I think it's important for us to be making that transparent and helping us really parse out who should we trust in the media, people like journalists like Mark Bittman, uh, and, and who we might want to be skeptical of. And as, and I'd be curious to know your perspective, Mark, having been in, the, in uh, as a journalist and now working with heated medium, you know, how much the media landscape has changed and how much we are seeing so much more corporate sponsorship of media outlets and media events. And how does that shape what we're hearing about food and farming and sustainability? You know, I think in a way, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of this is on journalism and how much isn't. Um, there are some very, very fundamental myths that we're having trouble countering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're decent journalists, and people even pay attention. I mean, to what we say, and yet, and yet, we were we were having this conversation yesterday. Also, there are some some really very basic things like the protein issue that I brought up um, that we just can't seem to get past. And one is, well, we need to increase, for example, that we need to increase yield of agricultural products in order to feed the world. And um, we, we know that, that, that that's not true. The UN says that that's true. There are enough calories being produced even now to feed every, not only everybody in the world now, but everybody in the world 30 years from now. Um, and yet those kinds of memes are repeated over and over again. And they come from, they come from agribusiness or big food or whatever you want to call it. And yet, um, we can't seem to get to the point where we, we can disprove them, but we can't mm-hmm. seem to get to the point where they're not common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the kind of thing you said before, we were in the green room and, and Anna was, which she can talk about, um, this huge backlog of misinformation produced by Monsanto about uh, the chemical industry. When you look at that, but also, you know, not to change the subject really, but when you look at the fact that there's disinformation um, being put forward constantly by the White House and has been on and off for the last 50 years or whatever, but especially as right now, it's just hard to know how to attack that. Yeah. Well, so what Mark is referring to uh, is that um, uh in the last year or so, there have been a, a number of landmark cases of, of plaintiffs suing Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer, uh, with, in association with cancer that developed because of exposure to uh, herbicide called Roundup. And in the course of this litigation, uh, there's been dis- disclosures. There are now more than 10 million pages of internal Monsanto documents. If anybody wants to dive into them yourself, you can <laughs> Google Monsanto papers and find them. And it makes for fascinating reading. But How uh, many ten, have you gone through uh, of those 10 million? Was, seven, you know, a very million. small percentage, <laughs> I would say, of 10 million. But what you see is, you see a lot. But what, what I have been both seeking out and most interested in is the shaping of the narrative that Mark is uh, talking about. So you can read the email where you you literally read the email of the Monsanto executive writing to a professor at a public university saying, hey, we noticed on WebMD the information that's being posted about genetically modified organisms is raising some questions about how much GMOs are associated with a heavy amount of pesticide spraying. Would you mind going and writing a blog that's positive about GMOs? And here's the exact instructions about how to do so. 
I mean, you can read this email. You can read an email saying, hey, we just got word. I'm not going to remember the state. It might have been Ohio. Anyway, got word from a, a state department of education that they're updating their, uh, uh, their middle school science tech, textbooks. And they're going to insert some comments about there's some questions being raised about genetically modified organisms in agriculture. It's really important that we have a strong showing of, of, academics going to that state department of uh, education to really push back on those changes in the textbook. I mean, these are the emails you can see in these documents. So what, you know, a lot of us had, had seen evidence of in various ways, you can really see very in black and white in these emails. And in uh, a couple of years ago, when we kind of uh, some colleagues and I did some research to really try to look at this question you're raising, Mark, like how, why is it hard to break through? And uh, we looked at the budgets of the top 10 biggest food industry funded front groups. And it was something on the magnitude of hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of several years being spent just for those 10 front groups to be directly trying to shape the narrative about what you and I think about food and to try to kind of combat the kind of messaging you hear from people like Bart Mittman and me. So that's the kind of thing we're up against. Um, and, and that, that I think exposing it and bringing it to light, uh, like good journalism does is a really important, important part of kind of inoculating all of us to that misinformation. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. I think there's um, an, a small attempt out there of people who are writing books trying to do that. Um, uh, a book by Kristen Lawless, the formerly known as Food. Um, I, Mark wrote um, that so much of what we eat doesn't qualify as food, uh, that it uh, has a huge effect on our bodies and planet. And uh, you, you don't see that in the mainstream media so much. Well... You know, I don't know what you see a lot in the mainstream media. I, I think in a way it's, I don't, I don't know that this is a media problem. Um, well, but I don't know. So I don't have that much to say about that, I guess. But um, Kristen's book is good. I think one thing that's interesting about food is that we don't, and in, interesting about a lot of language, and, and this is, um, it's a point about disinformation, which is that we don't think about what words actually mean. So if you look at the word food, and I had this conversation with Kristen while she was writing that book, but if you look at the word food, it means some, it means a substance that provides nourishment. And if you look at the word nourishment, it means a substance that promotes growth and health and growth doesn't mean girth it means <laughs> um so there's some large percentage of things that are called food that don't qualify by that definition in fact they qualify more closely um to substances called poisons that is they cause ilf if which is an actual word that no one ever uses but the opposite <laughs> it's the opposite of health um so if you have a, a food that causes ill, it's actually a, a poison. Um, right. And by definition, not a food. Right. right. By definition, right. not a food. So we have this, I mean, there's this very amusing, we have, we, us and our colleagues have come up with very cute names for non-food things like unidentifiable food like objects or UFOs or... Um, People also edible food like substances right. or, or talk about sad, the standard American diet right. is another another phrase. But it's it's in a way it's it's um, it's just interesting to think about what things actually mean and how they actually qualify. So if you say to somebody, you know, 60 or 80 percent of the stuff in a supermarket doesn't meet the definition of the word food. That's an interesting way to think about a supermarket. Mm -hmm. 
There's researchers at Tufts University that have made a case that subsidizing fruits and vegetables could prevent millions of cases of chronic disease. Well, that 86% of the healthcare costs in the U.S. are driven by chronic disease. And your book could be a wonderful solution to learning how to use fruits and vegetables in our diet. Right. Um, (laughs) Diet-driven disease is the leading cause of chronic disease, not only in the United States, but in the world. Um, Some of that remains hunger, but it's not the majority. The majority is the other form of malnutrition, which is eating food that's higher in calories than it is in nutritive substances. So um, if you're driving uh, chronic disease by diet, then diet by definition is a really big a really big problem and chronic disease. But in the, in the 20th century, certainly in the centuries before the 20th century, the leading cause of death among humans was infectious diseases. Now the leading cause of death among humans is chronic diseases and the leading driver of chronic diseases um, is diet. So if we want to talk about subsidies, we can talk about subsidies. We are subsidizing agriculture to the tune of $100 billion a year? Yeah, I was just looking at it, actually. The farm bill from 2018 to 2028 uh, is about, I think it was like almost $700 billion for the next okay. 20 so that, But that, some of that, uh, the majority of that, in fairness, is, is for, for SNAP. That's so, yep. so let's say that subsidies... But that is also, but yes. Right. <laughs> but let's say that subsidies for ethanol, for corn, for... Um, Big farming is around $100 million a year, $100 billion a year. Sorry, it doesn't make any difference to either of us what the number is, but um, a lot. We are already subsidizing food. So the question is, do we want to subsidize? Subsidy has now become a bad word. But actually, again, if you go back to the dictionary, there's nothing wrong with the word subsidy. But let's use the word incentivize. Mm -hmm. We're incentive because people find it less objectionable. (laughs) We're incentivizing bad food or Mm non-food. We could just as easily incentivize good food. We're already spending $100 billion dollars. That would be a great incentive toward getting people to eat fruits and vegetables. That's actually a lot of money. And, um, you know, I was thinking, it just occurred to me a day or two ago that New York City was going to subsidize, incentivize Amazon to build a headquarters in New York, in Queens. And they were going to subsidize Amazon, one of the three wealthiest companies in the world. They were going to subsidize Amazon to the tune of $3 billion. So... I thought, with well, $3 billion, that's a hefty subsidy. What's that buy in farms? Mm-hmm. Well, $3 billion is $3,001 million farms, which puts a lot of people to work on the farm. But $100 billion is $100,001 million farms, which changes the food system entirely in this country. So it's now I'm going to really let you talk because... This is about democracy. This is about how we want to spend our money. And and um, for those of you who came prepared to talk about cooking, <laughs> we can do that during the Q and A. But um, this is a you know this is this is one of the biggest issues facing us right now. It's a climate change issue. It's a public health issue. It's an environmental issue. It's a labor issue. It's an immigration issue. It's everything, and it's really a democracy issue. And I'll just say one more thing, and then I'll shut up. I've been traveling for a week, and among these um, uh, among the stops was one in Tennessee, um, which I keep calling Kentucky because you know I'm from New York. Um, <laughs> And I was at Al Gore's farm, and, um, and Al said, in order to solve the climate crisis, we have to solve the democracy crisis. So that was the best thing Al said, by the way. Um, and Anna, not to put you on the spot, but it's kind of your department. <laughs> but not to put you on the spot. Not but, to put you yeah, on the spot, I mean... but we expect you to run for vice president four years from now. That's a good idea. Yeah, well... Uh... 
I, what would I, I mean, there's, there is so much to say, obviously. And I think one of the things that I, I think is important to talk about when we talk about democracy, it feels like such a big word and it is such a big word. And particularly now in this political moment, it feels like having our national government reflect many of our values feels like such a, there is such a huge gap there. And I think when I think about democracy, I think of it kind of in all of its senses. And in other words, I think about it in terms of what's happening in your own community, community, in your own local democracy. And how can you engage there? How can you engage in your state? How can you engage in your region? And, you know, I feel like over many years, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, Mark, people have said, well, you know, how do you, how do you really change the food system? And you might have heard people say, well, you all need to vote with your fork. Well, you heard Mark say earlier, well, m- many of us, and I would dare say actually most of us don't, can't actually vote with our fork because the kinds of things we would want to vote for are not available to us in our grocery store, or we can't afford it, or we don't have the time to vote with our fork, or, you know, we don't have the time to be cooking. Or voting then, with your fork doesn't well, actually have all that much impact. Yeah. And then I've heard people say, well, you know, okay, so vote with your vote. Well, that's, you know, that, that's one way to do it, right? Vote for people who actually reflect your values. And, and I feel like at this point, I feel like I am really excited to see people not just voting with their vote, but actually starting to run for office, actually starting to develop local policies that do the kinds of things that Mark is talking about incentivizing. So the state of California has been a huge lead on this. There's a great group called the California Climate Agriculture Network, CalCAN. And they have helped, and I don't know if you've been tracking this, Mark, but in the past five years, they have helped incentivize farmers to do things like promote healthy soils and and use ecological farming practices and grow those healthy foods we're all talking about, a lot of it with climate implications, to the tune of, I think, $327 million of incentives in this state in the past five years. So that's the kind of uh, expression of democracy that gets me really excited and that I feel like you know, yes, we might not see a farm bill that totally reflects the kinds of incentives you're talking about, but what can we do locally and what can we do in our states to see that happen? There's another area that you're working in, um, in terms of using philanthropy for systems change. And I think that there's a role that you're playing with one of the family uh, foundations, for example. Are there, um, are there other, are there ways to encourage wealthy individuals using nature-based solutions? Mm-hmm. Is that- Absolutely. I mean, I will say I went into this work with this particular family foundation as a very reluctant <laughs> participant in philanthropy where I was, I was, you know, I feel like there's a great critical literature out there that is really pushing this message that actually really wealthy individuals should be taxed more <laughs> and that actually having those dollars in a more democratic, transparent system is what we want to see. But yes, short of that, short of seeing massive tax restructuring, uh, there are a lot of really well-meaning folks who have resources who want to see it deployed philanthropically. And this connects back to democracy. So the kinds of things we've been able to fund in our program are organizations that are helping to really mobilize for political change. So one of the places we've been funding is in Hawaii, which, um, yes, we've got some <laughs> folks from Hawaii out there. And, uh, and Hawaii, which might surprise many of you, is actually ground zero for the development and testing of new genetically modified seeds. And as a result, there's a huge spike in the amount of pesticides used and restricted use pesticides used. And so we've been funding groups in Hawaii that have been saying, you know, this is not okay. We need to regulate this pesticide use better. We need buffer zones between these fields and schools and hospitals. We need disclosure of what's being sprayed. We need better tracking of the birth defects that are spiking in Hawaii. And these groups organized and they uh, trained people to run for office and they got people who cared about these issues into office. And last year they passed the first substantial pesticide regulation that the state had ever seen. And, and one of the things that Hawaii did was they, uh, these, uh, these activists that were part of this effort did was, I think one of the most significant part of that pesticide uh, regulation package was banning, and they were the first state in this country to do so, banning for agricultural use a particularly brain damaging insecticide known as chlorpyrifos. 
And all of us here in California should be proud to know that our state, California, also just banned the pesticide, Clopyrifus. So I feel like these these wins can spread, uh, and and it's been exciting to be part of, of of seeing these kinds of wins happen on the ground. But I don't know. I mean, democracy. You could talk about it too. It's big. It's <laughs> yeah. big. I um, I'd like to talk more about democracy. I'd like to talk more about farming. I'd like to talk more about toxicity. But we're almost to the point where we want to give some other people in the room a chance to talk to. Um, but, um, Mark, I think it was you that wrote, we are not bystanders. Um, what are some of the ways that people can get involved today? I mean, obviously we can talk about picking clean food where that's possible. There's advocating and activation of a movement for non-toxic ingredients. What would it take to have that happen and improve people's lives? But, um, I think when we look back at ancient traditions, it seems like they knew how to create healthy bodies and healthy minds and longevity. I don't know, Okinawa and Mediterranean cultures. Are there ways that we can reactivate that tradition? Well, we can mimic, um, we can learn from and mimic what people are doing in, in places where traditional diets remain, but um, the Mediterranean diet is disappearing in the Mediterranean. So that's that's really a problem. The battle in our in our individual lives, I think we need to be aware that basically every traditional diet is healthier than every non-traditional mm -hmm. diet. That's a sort of fundamental truth, that every civilization, every society that's left traditional diets behind has become less healthy. And as societies continue to leave, to fall prey, I think, is fair the, to the marketing of big food, their lives become unhealthier. So as individuals... Um, we can look to traditional diets in kind of any form because they all work. You know, no animals except for humans have any problem figuring out what's good for them to eat. <laughs> it is funny, but it's really true. So if you look to what humans are meant to eat um, and you eat that way, which is, you know, the simplest thing in the world to say, you know, which is mostly plants and animal products as an occasional um, treat and unprocessed foods, nothing that your grandmother or at this point it's your great-grandmother didn't know about, nothing with more than five ingredients, blah, 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 blah. You know all of this stuff. I mean, Michael Pollan wrote about it beautifully, and a million of us have written about it since. Um, that's all pretty simple. But the more fundamental question is what do we do as a society. So we have individual problems, which some of us can solve. And then we have a society pro societal problem, which all of us need to solve. It goes back to the democracy question. And, and really the question is, how do you limit the power and the ability of big ag and big food to influence what everyone is eating? And um, in the United States, there's a series of problems, but it's become global, and it's a new form of neo-neo-colonialism. Neo um, and what do we do to change that? And the way to change that, the only way that I can see to change that, and it's not going to happen tomorrow, is through regulation. And um, the, way to, the way to get new regulations is to have progressive governments, as they're, you know, to, to a great extent, are here in California and in a few other states, um, and obviously, we're having trouble with that, particularly on a national level right now. But, you know, that could well change in a year. And I think one encouraging thing, and believe me, as you can tell, I'm not easily encouraged. But one <laughs> encouraging thing is that we have candidates who actually are using the word food for the first time in, mm. I, I don't know, ever. Um, and it's not just we need it's not just the Nixon era plea to, for farmers to plant fence row to fence row and get big or get out. I mean, we are hearing that from, what's his name, Sonny Perdue? Mm -hmm. or, yeah, we are hearing that from Sonny Perdue, but we are also seeing in the debates a little bit and among Democratic candidates plans for progressive 
moves in agriculture and in diet. And that, I went to Iowa four years ago, right at this time, and tried to talk to Democratic candidates about food and agriculture, and no one was interested. Mm -hmm. So now, at least, there's some interest. There's some awareness in this stuff. And kudos, by the way, to Marianne Williamson for being the first person to mention food in a debate this year, (laughs) spacey as she might be. But (laughs) that's the direction in which we need to go, I Mm -hmm. think. Yeah. And can I just say one word before we bring it? We're going to bring questions in, right? You get it. Okay. Can I just say one one thing? Because I feel like um, we didn't we didn't touch on this so much yet, and it might have might come up in questions. But I wanted to be sure to say it because I feel like I want to say a word about joy, and I want to say a word. You know, you said this is a an event about a cookbook, but we're not going to talk too much about cooking. Uh, but I just wanted to say a word about, about joy and the joy that comes from cooking. So one of my friends and colleagues is here tonight who uh, co-wrote uh, my second book with me called Grub. And he's an amazing chef. His name is Brian Terry, and he's somewhere out there. And... And Brian is an amazing chef and, uh, and, uh, and create such beauty and art with his food and brings community together around food. And working on that book with Brian was such a joyful experience for me because I came into this very, as you might notice so far in this conversation, you know, very interested in the politics and, and, uh, and he, uh, really helped bring to life the joy in the community around food. And I have to say, Mark, I was saying earlier that how to cook everything vegetarian is a centerpiece in my family's kitchen. And I think about how much joy my family and I have had together eating meals, a lot of them from that book and some of his other books. And I I was telling the story to Mark. I have uh, two daughters who are now seven and 10. And last year I was cooking from a book he wrote called Kitchen Matrix. Is that Mm. Kitchen Matrix? Yeah. Kitchen Matrix, which I highly recommend. And there was this one soup recipe and I made it for the first time and, and served it to the girls for the first time. And they both took a bite of this very complex flavored soup and they looked at me and they just said, mom, I love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I wanted to just be sure that that idea of joy and how much, you know, and you know, how, how much joy can come from, from cooking together and eating together. Thank you for that reminder. Are there those out, uh, out where I can't see um, that would like to be at the microphone and ask a question? Thanks for, thanks for coming tonight uh, over here. Um, talking about politics and democracy and everything and the candidates that are, are out on our stages uh, and the debates and everything. Uh, it sounds like a lot of them want to take on climate change. And uh, if you had a magic wand... What would you like to see in these climate change bills, plans that could help move the f- food movement in the right direction? It's a great question. Um, we probably we might or might not have the same answer. Um, the magic wand is a is a big thing, but let's just let's take a little magic wand. Um, if we could regulate confined animal feeding operations the way they ought to be regulated. That would be an awesome first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, cheers to that. <laughs> and, and, and I would just add, I mean, Mark talked about this earlier, the incentives or subsidies, uh, choose your word, uh, if we could shift that. So really we were talking about, you know, looking at a lot of people know about the farm bill and think of it as food and farm policy. I like to think of it as climate policy too. And I think that's one of our actually a really substantial potential climate policy tool we have to shift the farm bill. I remember going to the American, uh, meat institutes marketing convention in Nashville, Tennessee. And this was a number of years ago. And there was some conversation about the, that there would be a spike that year in the prices for corn and soy. So much of our corn and soy goes to these feedlots that Mark's talking about. And the meat industry was absolutely terrified because that would mean the prices for production would go significantly up. So that mechanism, how do we incentivize the farming that's going to be good for the climate and how do we do things like regulate the pollution from these farms? And frankly, I feel like what California has been doing these last number of years is sort of beta testing some really amazing food and climate policy, getting farmers and ranchers in this state to develop really great, uh, really great examples of what it looks like to really build healthy soil and, uh, to really, um, to, to use compost on their farms, to do all kinds of things. So I feel like we have teed up in this state, some really great policy precedent that could 
potentially go national. Thank you. Thank you both. You're both champions, and it's so great to have you here. You. Um, I work at the San Francisco Marin Food Bank, and it was good for you, Mark. It was good to hear about hunger. And we feed one in five families in San Francisco and Marin County. 270 pantries. We distribute about 7 million pounds of food a year, 60% of which is now fruits and vegetables. We're 32 years old. It took us a long time to get there. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you think we should tackle food insecurity in the broader culture and locally. In the Bay Area alone, I think we're something at like 35 million missing meals annually. Um, so it, it's, you know, it, it's staggering. And the food pantry network throughout the state is an incredible organization. And I just encourage you to really speak to hunger and food insecurity. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Do you want to well, anything? Well, kudos. Thank you for that work. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, hunger is an income issue, um, obviously, and people going to food pantries, using food pantri- pantries are not doing that for any reason other than they can't that then they can't afford to buy food elsewhere. So these are when we talk about and Anna and I both do this a lot. And when we talk about food being a more central issue than it's being given credit for and when we talk about food touching all aspects of what society does and when we talk about working on food, meaning working on democracy and working on equality. Um, this is what we're talking about. The The way to relieve hunger is to relieve poverty, is to increase income. So it's to reduce inequality. Um, and that means across all lines, and that means for people from everywhere. Um, and I hate to sound redundant, but that's a democracy issue. Yeah. Um, we need fundamental societal change. And uh, the way to do that is to organize and, the, and, and to organize around voting for the right people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to add, I, wanna, I don't want to say too much because I want to hear from other folks, but just to, to thank you for your work and to add to that, that, you know, again, not to say that well, well, actually to say that food touches everything and it's implicated in all of these issues. So to me, uh, you know, Medicare for all and medical, medical costs are a food issue. If you have to spend a thousand dollars on insulin, you're making that choice and not able to get healthy food. That is a food issue. Uh, housing costs. I live here in the Bay area. I see what's happening to housing costs. That in a way is this food issue. You know, how I'm sure that that's what you're seeing, right? Among the people you work with. So I've been really encouraged by a group called closing the hunger gap. I don't know if you work with them, but it's a group of folks all across the country that are connected to food banks to say, well, what would it look like to really see food banks as this as a site of organizing around these issues and as a way to build power and as a way to engage people to say we need living wage we need housing uh, regulation on housing costs we need to be engaged in the conversation on medical uh, costs as part of the conversation about how do we address these root causes of hunger here so um, so just wanted to add that and and move on to the next question so so my quick anecdote is I grew up in the Bay Area with a hippie mom. So did I. Backyard, yeah, backyard. I mean, I thought this was a utopia, you know, like fresh made applesauce, chicken eggs, like incredible fruits and vegetables. And I've lived in many parts of the country now and, and internationally. Um, I am not perfect. I eat my share of junk food, but I'm still shocked at how, like, why is it that we are so gullible as a people? I know there are lobbying issues that really play into this, but why do we allow so much crap in our food when the European Union has figured this out and does not even allow artificial colors in our food? It, it baffles me. I don't know. Where, where do we go from here? Well, there is actually a kind of answer to that question. I mean, the European Union is not figured out, but it is ahead of us. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and the answer to that question is that Europe generally recognizes this thing called the precautionary principle, which means... We're going to figure out if something hurts you before we allow someone else to sell it to you. Whereas we, the United States, say we're going to allow them to sell it to you. And then if it hurts you, we might take it off the market. And if you you have to prove it is hurting you before we will take it off the market. But why this false notion that the FDA makes it so difficult for certain kinds of products to get approved then? 
if they're just approving it before they know if it actually hurts us. That's a whole deeper (laughs) question. It's not that difficult to get products approved, but drugs are regulated more stringently than food, for sure. Mm -hmm. Manuel Manga, uh, thank you very much. Um, I'll be very quick. Uh, First of all, thank you very much for bringing a systemic perspective to the food system, that is democracy, capitalism, food, eating, planet, climate change, etc., etc. It's all a systemic issue. They're all interdependent issues, and we need to think about it locally and globally. So thank you for that. Anna um, reminded me I was in Boston University about 40 years ago. I listened to your mother. I was in the audience when she presented Food for Small Planet, uh, that brought back some memories. And wow, that was 40 years ago, something like that, at BU. Um, and we were part of the, I mean, some of us part of the Hunger Project. We were trying to eliminate hunger by the year 1980. Uh, we didn't achieve it, but we were working on that. Uh, so here's my food question. Um, the doctors told me uh, the Harvard diet, that's the best diet, the Harvard diet. So, I, you know, 50% uh, vegetables, 25% carbo and 25% protein. They didn't say what kind of protein, but they said 25% protein. So it sounded good. I've been trying to follow that. So what's your take on that Harvard diet? Or do you have a diet that you said traditional diets are good? So just wondering what your comment is on the Harvard diet. I mean, I don't know anything about the Harvard diet. So um, certainly a diet that's 50% protein, 25% animal products, and Sorry, 50% plants, 25% carbs doesn't mean anything. It just means another 25% plants. So a diet that's 75% plants and 25% animal products is a pretty good diet. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I want to thank our luminaries, Mark Bittman and Anna LaPay, for their comments. Thanks, everybody. Thank you all. And and we want to thank our... I know. We also want to thank our audience here in the club, as well as the radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you all for coming.